you take your Bibles, turn to Philippians chapter 2. On our Sunday mornings, we're studying the book of Philippians. The writer, the Apostle Paul, writes from his prison. He is in house arrest. House arrest in the Roman Empire meant that you weren't permitted to leave at your house. You were responsible for your own upkeep there. And so Paul depended on others to provide for him. In addition to that, he was... Uh, literally chained to a Roman guard 24 hours a day. And so his body had a chain, and the other end of the chain would be an imperial guard that would change every four to six hours. And so that was his constant company. He was allowed visitors, and so those from churches that he knew, friends, would come in, and they would talk of the gospel. They would talk of the ministry, and he would get reports as to what was going on around him and uh, extended into places where he had churches. He would get letters from churches and write back to them. And Philippians was one of those letters that he wrote. Wrote to the church in Philippi that he had started. You can read about it in Acts. Uh, in Philippi, he uh, met a wealthy woman named Lydia who uh, trusted the Lord Jesus and became probably a benefactor of the church. Uh, very possible that she hosted the church in her own house. Uh, for some time. He met a slave girl who was possessed by a demon and paraded around by those who owned her as a slave as a, a way to make money. She was a circus act because of the possession. Uh, Paul, in the name of Christ, commanded the demon to leave and Christ forced that demon out. The owners of the slave were angry because their money-making venture was gone, but the little girl was set free. Perhaps she was a member of this church. And then Paul was in prison. He was singing psalms and hymns and psalms while he was in prison uh, with uh, uh, his uh, partner, uh, Silas, in the ministry there. And as they were singing, the, there was an earthquake. It rattled the building. And the gates of the prisons sprung open. The prison guard there uh, saw what had happened and knew what would happen to him if the prisoners escaped. And so he pulled out his own sword, preparing to commit suicide. And Paul said, we haven't gone anywhere. And he taught this man who had left them in prison, beaten and untended, gave them no medical care, just let them suffer. After all, they were just prisoners. He taught this man the gospel and he believed and taught his family. This man was likely a member of this same church receiving this letter and now Paul is writing to them from his circumstances and talking about what they have. They have riches in Christ and a joy that's beyond uh, being extinguished. And he says, in light of that, I want you to live as one body. You're going to suffer persecution. And the way you're going to be able to endure it is by knowing what you have in Christ and by living together in uh, uh, as one united body. But then he says, and then how you're going to work together in life is in the church, you're going to find obstacles that get in the way among you. I want you to live united here uh, when you're standing together uh, in the church. And that's where we've come to in chapter 2, what it looks like to live together as one united body. Before we read it, let's pray and ask God's blessing on the time we spend in his work. Father, we would pray for a supernatural unity, for a unity that reflects the Trinity, 
Jesus taught in the prayer in John 17 that he wanted us to be one as you, Father, and you, Son, are one. Your desire for us is to be so connected uh, that we could experience what it means to be one body, committed to one another, uh, even above our commitment to self. Now, that won't come in, in any way natural. That won't come to us just ordinary means. That will come by your Spirit's work, by your using the Scriptures and your work among us. And so we appeal to you, Holy Spirit, come in and work in us as we read and consider what you have revealed through Paul. And would you cause your church to flourish in Christ Jesus, we pray in his name. Amen. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interests of others. This is God's word. It is completely true, and it is utterly trustworthy. My first year as a campus minister at Tennessee Tech, one of the students in RUF was uh, the son of a PCA pastor, and so I got to know him a little bit through that. And uh, when we were introduced, I asked what brought him to Tech because he was from Florida. He said, I came to play football. He was the quarterback, the starting quarterback for the team. And uh, that made going to the games a whole lot more interesting, knowing somebody out there. And I was at a game once where Robert Kraft, the quarterback, uh, was uh, took the ball as the play began and looked to the left for a second. And then sort of all of a sudden whipped around to the right before he even had time to see what was there and threw the ball. It landed about a yard out, out of bounds, uh, uh, 15 yards down the line. And it was a really beautiful spiral, but it just seemed like an odd place to throw the ball. And some of the fans also thought so. I heard them saying, what's he doing? What kind of throw is that? It was just, it was terrible. And it didn't look like it meant anything, except if you knew what was really going on. The whole point of his looking to the left was a decoy. He was looking over there to give the wide receiver time to go to the very spot where he was going to throw the ball. In fact, before the play of football even began, he knew exactly where that ball was going. Only the thing was the wide receiver ran the wrong spot. And so it was 10 or 15 yards away. And it looked like it was a really bad play on the quarterback's part when it turns out it was really a bad play on the wide receiver's part. But nobody can know that unless you're sort of in on the story. The picture that I've tried to draw for you in a real-life example is of a football team where the players weren't on the same page. They weren't thinking the same thing. And uh, so there was some disorder. Uh, it didn't work. Well, that's a crude and uh, inadequate way to describe what Jesus has in mind in his church. That you're to be on the same page. Where it says... In verse 2, complete my joy by being of the same mind. It could kind of more woodenly and poorly for English be translated like this. I complete my joy 
by, be, by thinking the same thing. Now, that is, in some ways, what God wants among us. For us to have the same mind. He's actually going to say it three times. In verse 27 of, of chapter 1, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you're standing firm with one spirit in with one mind. Again, the verse we read, verse 2, having the same mind or being of the same mind. And then in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Paul's really concerned with what you think. And he wants you to think the same things. He wants what's going through your head to be something that unites you. I want to talk about what those things are. He wants you to think. He wants you to think about what you have. He wants you to think about what you need to give up. And he wants you to think about what you can give to each other. So I want you to think about what you have first. Verse 2. or cha- Sorry, chapter 2, verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ. He starts out with this sort of if statement. If you have any encouragement from Christ, any at all, you can expect a then statement, if you have it. Now, you, you can hear even that very sentence. It wasn't really designed to be, you know, there's going to be a few of you who've had encouragement from Christ. Y'all, this, this, these commands apply to you. The rest of you, don't worry about it. His sentence is meant to be rhetorical. That is, it's supposed to kind of awaken you. Oh, yeah, of course. You know, it's not that we've received a little encouragement in Christ, but we have lots of encouragement in Christ. And so some versions even translate it, since you have encouragement in Christ. That's really the sense of the, of the passage. That's the idea, the concept that Paul had in mind. It's kind of like a commercial would say, if you are tired of the summer heat and everybody goes, that's me. If you wish your life was more fun, well, who doesn't do that? These are commercials. That's their way to say, we've got something for you. This is Paul's way to say, I want to capture you. I want to capture you by recognizing and and highlighting what you have in Christ. If you have any encouragement in Christ. Encouragement here is is this motivating uh, power. If Christ motivates you in any way, And he's just uh, told you in the end of chapter 1, you're going to have persecution. I want you to stand there without fear, without being frightened or courageously. I want you to have courage. I want you to be encouraged. That you're walking in the same path as Jesus who suffered before you. And this isn't new. This is God's way. And you're coming along the same path as Jesus. And and I'm in the same conflict with you, it says in verse 30. There's a, a fight in the world, and we're fighting it together. And so if you have any encouragement in that conflict from Jesus, you have plenty. Jesus gives you courage because he entered the conflict and overcame it. Because he went further in the conflict than you would. You guys remember the scene in the Gospels, where Jesus is carrying his own cross up to the place where they would crucify him, and he collapses. 
And there, under the weight of the cross and his own fatigue, they grab a man named Simon and cause him to carry the cross and let Jesus lead it up. But when they get to the end of the path, the hill where they would crucify the criminals, they tell Simon to leave. And Jesus takes the cross. And Jesus had taught people, if you're going to be my disciple, you have to take up your cross and follow me. And Simon's this beautiful picture of what that looks like. We take up a cross and we follow Jesus. Only when we get to the place where dying is required, he dies, not us. And so you get this encouragement in your life that the suffering that you bear gives you the same path as Jesus, but he goes farther. He clears the path out and makes sure that you survive it. And then he goes farther and dies in the path so that he can be raised from the dead and you can know that's my destiny too. If I'm in the path of his suffering, then I'm in the path of his resurrection. Is there encouragement in Christ? Yes. Yes, there is. Do you have any comfort from love? Is there any comfort in your mind, in your heart, to know that God the Father loves you with a steadfast, enduring love? Does it, do you find any comfort from uh, Paul's words in Romans that nothing in life can separate you from the love of Christ? Not, not peril, not sword, not enemy, not even yourself, nothing in heaven, no spiritual power can separate you from the love of Christ? Does it encourage you to know that Jesus says, when you are weary and weak, come to me and get rest? My burden is easy. My yoke is light. And he invites those he loves to come with their weakness. Is there any comfort in that? Is there any comfort that you find from Jesus on the cross looking at the very ones who had nailed him there saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Do you find any comfort in Paul saying, I was the chief of sinners and yet I have grace that covers my sins and it's so that you would know the grace is enough for your sins. Does it comfort you to hear the gospel's declaration that while we were still sinners, God demonstrates his love for us and that Christ died then? Not after you had come to him, not after you had shown some initiative and in saying, I want God. But when you were in the deepest rebellion of your life, Christ had already died for you. And if he loved you then, won't he love you now that he has begun to produce the life of Christ in you? Isn't there any comfort in the love of Christ? If there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from the love, any participation in the Spirit, is there any chance that you, you say, I, I know that the Spirit is at work in me? That God the Father says, I won't ever leave you and I won't forsake you. I will walk with you in every moment. And when you are weak, I'll be strong for you. Because I'll send my Spirit to you. He will help you. That's the promise that God is with us. Is there any affection or sympathy the writer of Hebrews says that Jesus was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet without sin, so that he could be a sympathetic high priest. 
Now, this is remarkable. You know, what we tend to do is we see people who are struggling with some kind of sin and we say, yeah, you you shouldn't do that. I, I don't do that, so you shouldn't do that. You know, when we hear someone who's gossiping and you think, I don't like gossip. We feel superior to people who gossip. I want you to hear what Jesus thinks. Jesus says, I know the temptation to gossip. I didn't, but I know how powerful it is. And I want you to know I'll give you help from heaven. He doesn't look at you and say, why don't you get your act together? He says, I know how hard it is. I know what it's like to be lonely, to be betrayed by friends. I know what it's like to want that friendship so badly that you will do anything to get it. And so when you are tempted, Jesus is sympathetic. And so when Paul says here, if you have any encouragement, any comfort from his love, any participation in the spirit, any affection and sympathy, his point is you should have this in overflowing measure if you know what Christ has done for you. There was a, in uh, A.D. 200 to 2.10, the first decade of the 200s, uh, Septimius Severus was the emperor and he began a systematic persecution of Christians in North Africa. In the city of Carthage, there was a woman named Perpetua. She was 22 years old. She was nursing a child. She was arrested for being a Christian. While she was in prison, her father, not a believer, came to her and said, Listen, just make the offering to the emperor. Recant your faith. Uh, just deny this. Consider my gray hair. Consider my heartache. Consider your brother who will be broken without you. Consider your son. Don't go this way. She said, I have to leave all those things to God. You would not call this vase anything but a vase. You can't call me anything but a Christian. She went to the magistrate. He said to her, Will you offer the sacrifice, the sacrifice for the emperor? It was an act of worship of the emperor. She said, I will not. Are you a Christian then? Yes, I am. And that was the end of her trial. She was condemned to die in the arena. She went to the arena along with a servant of hers from her own household named Felicitas. And while she, along with three other people from their little home church. And standing in the arena were gladiators holding wild animals on chains. The animals were released, and the first one was a wild heifer. You know it's true, because who would think of that? And the wild heifer charged and threw her into the air. She landed on her back. She got up and adjusted her tunic, clearly in pain, but she was also still modest. And then she went over to help her servant who had been knocked down and picked her up. They released a leopard that had been starved. And the first blood was drawn and the crowd became even more bloodthirsty. And it wasn't happening fast enough. They cheered for the gladiators. And so the gladiators came and ended the lives of all five of the Christians with swords. Why wouldn't Perpetua say, I've got so much to live for? But because she had encouragement and comfort that what she had to live for, God would take care of. But she had a Savior who was worth more than that. 
She had encouragement and comfort, and it gave her the opportunity to face her persecutors without fear and to even tend to her servant in the arena instead of herself. And, and that is what Paul says you have. You have encouragement and comfort and participation in the Spirit and affection and sympathy. And so he says, I want you, knowing what you have, to be willing to give up something. Verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. I want you to give up self-promotion. Self-promotion is the one thing that destroys unity and community faster than anything else. I want you to give it up. Rivalry is this attitude that says, I'm going to compare myself and try to advance myself. You remember your high school rival or your college rivals, whoever it was. In, in, in my high school, it was loud and next town over. And uh, we had a good chant. I'd rather be dead than red. They wore red. Anything but being from Loudon. That was the idea. And there's a way for that attitude to creep into uh, our relationships. Where I look at other people and I would never say, I'd rather be dead than so-and-so. But I might think, I feel really good about my life because I can compare myself to so-and-so. And I'm really saying, I'm better. The same way I did in high school. And, and I can look at other people and say, they've got something I want. And so I'm going to work hard to achieve and compare myself. And what I'm really doing is competing. And I'm willing to, you know, bring somebody else down in order to promote myself. I'm trying to advance my own glory. That's one way to translate the word conceit. It's translated in some versions, vain glory or empty glory. I'm trying to make my name great. And it's empty. It's worthless. It's a glory that evaporates in a moment. The real effect of self-promotion is that I begin to look at other people as tools to get where I want to be. If you can help me promote myself, if you can help me feel good about myself, if you can help me achieve that, um, you know, my potential then I will use your input. I will use your life. And in one way, what happens is I try to use people like that. I'm really treating you more like the pews than a person. After all, a pew is very helpful and useful for sitting. And so that's what it's for. I use it to help me sit. A person is someone who's made in the image of God. And when I treat them as some way to get to my ends, I'm treating them like furniture like an object. It's self-promotion and it's community destroying. And the reason we want to self-promote, the reason we want to make our names great is because we feel like if I'm going to get something that I deserve, I'm going to arrive at my goals. If I'm going to make something of myself, I've got to be the one who does it. But Paul is saying, then you've forgotten what you have. You have Christ who encourages you. You have Christ who loves you. You have the Spirit who walks and fellowships with you. Do you think you can accomplish more than that? 
Paul is saying it doesn't make any sense for you to be a self-promoter. Rather, you're going to be one who leans on Christ and says, I'll take what you give rather than what I can achieve. And so I'm going to give up my selfish ambitions. And rather, I'm, I'm going to learn to give to others. Some things he says to give in verse uh, 2. He says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. That uh, same love is reflective of the love that you have that brings you comforts. As you experience the love of Christ, give the love of Christ to each other. He says not just the same love, but be of full accord. Uh, the, the way it could be translated is, is be one soul. He, he wants you to think of each other in the church as soulmates. Bonded together because of Christ as people who are on the same path. And, and we're going to arrive together. And that if you uh, suffer on the way, then I suffer on the way. Because we're, we're soulmates. We're tied together. If you thrive on the way, then I thrive on the way. There's a togetherness that, that Paul wants you to think. We're soulmates. And so what happens to you happens to me. Let's, this is all sort of heady and, and kind of conceptual. Let's make it really concrete. What does it look like to think the same thing, to share the same love, to uh, give up on selfish ambitions, to think of each other as soulmates? It looks like this. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. I, I begin to think real practically what is good for you is more important than what is good for me. I begin to think what you need is more significant than what I need. In a practical way, it means sometimes we come to church thinking, I really am coming here in order to, to get something that's going to help me with my week. And listen, I want you to know, I hope you do. Part of my vision is that you would come here hungry and leave feeling satisfied and full. But I think really it's still the misplaced God. I would rather you come in, I think Paul would rather you come in, looking around going, who here needs me? Who needs me to help them remember that they have encouragement in Christ? Who here needs me to sit beside them and say, you need comfort from Christ's love. In some ways, this passage ought to determine where you sit. Let's, let's be really practical. What we tend to do is say, I have a spot. That's my spot. I want you to say, I want to come in and determine where I sit today based on who needs me. Now, it might be where you are. Don't, don't panic. But I want us to think, instead of coming here and saying, what am I going to get today? I want to come here and think, what am I going to give? I want to transform my entire thinking from consumer, what do I get out of it, to God has given me so much, how can I put it back? 
Now, the, the, the benefit is when you stop caring about what you're going to get, you'll get plenty. Jesus will take care of you. That's why we start by thinking, what do I have in Christ? I have an abundance in Christ. I have plenty. I have encouragement and comfort. I have love. I have affection. I have sympathy. I have Jesus. And He comes to give Himself through you to other people. He comes to give Himself here in the church through our unity, through our being bonded together, through our thinking. You know, what the other person in this room needs is more important than what I need. And so today, here's what I want you to pray. I want you to pray this uh, every morning until it takes. We'll, we'll probably be till Jesus comes back. But let's pray this. Father, today I'm going to trust you to provide for me. I'm going to trust you to take care of all my needs. I'm going to abandon myself to you in every way. Would you help me be concerned for others more than myself? To pray that prayer is to say to yourself, I have everything in Jesus. How can I put somebody ahead of me? And it's the very thing that through the Apostle Paul, God says, that's the way I want the church to look. I want people to come into my church and go, who can I serve? And in the process, discover all their needs were met. Wouldn't that be great? Wouldn't it be great to be able to hang a sign on the church that said First Presbyterian Church, where you give and give and give and find all your needs met? Let's pray together. Father, I have to, I'm going to be honest, uh, not that I could hide anything from you, a good part of this terrifies me, because I'm so accustomed to seeking my own, and I'm, I'm, I'm terrified of having to trust you to provide it. Now, I've seen that you've, trusted, you've sent Jesus, and if you wouldn't withhold your son, how will you not give us everything else? I know that this makes sense, but it's still frightening. Would you help me think, give and give and give, and trust you to meet our needs? Would you help us be a church that gives and gives and gives, and find that you've met all our needs in Christ, and you would be praised and glorified, and Jesus would be great to us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.